Let me invite you now to stand as we come to the reading from the Bible. And we are looking at John chapter 5. And beginning at verse 30, Jesus is answering those who were attacking him for claiming to be God. We looked at his first answer two weeks ago, and now we're looking at the second. It really all starts at verse 19, which is literally answered, therefore, Jesus, and said, and now we're at verse 30, which is a transition verse before his second answer. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Lord, in an age of confusion, would you give us clarity? In an age of doubt, would you give us faith? And in an age for many people of despair, would you graciously give us hope? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4. And beginning at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of God.
Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. So Bertrand Russell said that he would explain his lack of belief in Jesus on Judgment Day. Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. For Russell, the evidence for the existence of God, and certainly for the claim that Jesus is God, was simply insufficient to warrant faith. Now, we are in the middle of two answers that Jesus gave to the Pharisees who objected to his claim that he was God. He had healed a man, but he had healed him on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees uh, complained about this vehemently because, according to their legalistic interpretation of what the Bible said about the Sabbath, he had violated those teachings. But Jesus, instead of correcting their misinterpretation of the Scriptures at that point, raises the bar higher. He says, as the Father is working, so I am also working always. In other words, as the Pharisees well understood, Jesus was thereby claiming to be God. And therefore they, we are told, all the more sought to kill him. And so Jesus is answering these objections from the Pharisees to the claim that he was God. Now the first answer we looked at two weeks ago. Jesus gave them reasons for why everyone can believe that he is God. To say that Jesus is God does not counter the monotheism which they already hold. It does not undermine their belief in the oneness of God to say that Jesus is God. How could it be that you can believe in one God and Jesus also to be God? Surely one plus one is two. But no, infinity plus infinity plus infinity is still infinity and we believe in the infinite God. What is more, as Jesus here taught, we saw a couple weeks ago, the Father, God, is love. But who does he love before the creation of the world? He loves himself. But love requires another to love. And so God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is infinite and is love. And there is therefore a reason to accept the claim that Jesus is God. Indeed, Jesus and God are one, and Jesus' word and God's word is one. Now, the claim of Jesus to be God is not, therefore, merely relatively true. We've got to get this straight in our heads these days. We live in a time when it is, it is fairly easy to go out and say, I believe that Jesus is God, and everyone will say, well, yes, good for you. But when Jesus claims to be God, he is not merely making a relative claim. This is not merely a matter of personal opinion. This is the essence of the universe, the essence of the maker of the universe. When uh, the famous scientist Einstein uh, proposed his theory of relativity, that did not mean that everything is relative. For then, Einstein's theory itself would only be relatively true. No, no, no. Einstein's theory of relativity means that time and space are in general relative connection to each other. But there are absolutes. 
C.S. Lewis was one time uh, told by a student of his that uh, everything was relative. And so C.S. Lewis went out of the classroom, boiled a kettle of water, came back in and held it dangerously above the student's head, which, of course, rather annoyed the student. His point, though, was that there are things that are wrong, and we all recognize it. We all know it. There are things that are wrong, and there are things that are right. And the claim that Jesus is God is not, therefore, merely a relative claim. It is absolutely true. So we looked at these reasons. But now today, we come to the second answer that Jesus gives to those objecting to his claim to be God. And this one is focused not on the uh, principal reasons of how he can be God as well as the Father be God. It is focused on the evidence, in particular, witnesses. Now, like uh, then, many now also feel they need more than philosophical explanations. They need more than a framework within which it's acceptable to believe that Jesus is God. No, they need hard evidence, evidential proof to accept that Jesus is truly and absolutely God. Many people are in that position today. Actually, there has been a long debate in some Christian circles about the right way to do apologetics. And I'm not going to get into this, but it's important to notice what is happening here in these two answers that Jesus is going. In Christian circles, there's been a long debate. Should it be like Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, or like Cornelius Van Til, presuppositional apologetics? I'm not going to explain all that because that would be another sermon, at least. But what is fascinating about Jesus' apologetic here, his answer for the claim that he is God, is that he employs both approaches. The reasons we looked at two weeks ago are more presuppositional. If you believe that God is love, if you believe that God is infinite and eternal, you should therefore be able to believe that Jesus is God. It makes sense, reasonable sense. But this week, it is more evidential, though not quite how some do evidence, uh, evidential apologetics today. At any rate, if you or anyone you know has ever wondered whether there is really enough evidence to believe that Jesus is God, you come to church, you go through the wheat and motions of being a Christian, but deep down, you're not fully committed. Why? Because deep down, if you are truly honest with me, you would say you're not 100% convinced that there is evidence that truly Jesus is absolutely God. And now that's you, or if you know anyone else like that, you will find this part of John's gospel particularly relevant. Jesus is making the case that everyone looking for God's glory, and that's an important phrase, we'll return to towards the end of the sermon, everyone looking for God's glory can have good evidence to believe that Jesus is God. And he presents four witnesses. The witness of John the Baptist the witness of Jesus' miracles, the witness of God's Word, and the witness of Moses. First, the witness of John the Baptist. 
Now here, Jesus could have simply said, uh, believe because I say so. He could have just used his authority as the Son of God and say, you need to believe because I say so. He could have pulled the ultimate trump card that those of us who are parents have probably all used at some point or other. A child says, why, why, why? You give all the explanations you can think of. In the end, you say, because I say so. Well, Jesus could have done that. But because, verse 34, he wants to save them, he presents witnesses. He's accommodating himself to their need for having evidence. And the first witness is that of John. And John's witness is good evidence because he was a burning and shining light, a preacher who they recognized then, like preachers we recognize now. John the Baptist was a burning and shining light, meaning that he was a special preacher. He did not merely ramble and rant, nor was he an egghead with no passion. There was a shining clarity to his preaching and a burning passion too. What is more, he was a preacher who they recognized then. They sent to him. They went to listen to him. They knew he was something special. Well, of course, Jesus is saying, if he is so special and if you recognize his authority, at least initially, you should listen to what he said about me, says Jesus. And this is good evidence because this is like preachers we recognize now. The uh, famed atheist David Hume was seen one time going to hear the evangelist George Whitfield preach. And someone uh, noticed this and asked David Hume what he was doing going to this event to hear this evangelist preach and said, well, you know, David, do you now believe? To which Hume is said to have replied, no, I don't, but he does. There is an authenticity a trustworthy quality when someone you notice and you can tell when you listen to them, when someone truly believes what it is that they are proclaiming, what it is they're teaching, what it is they're preaching. Now, that, that is not everything, that authenticity, but it is a significant something. And it's particularly important today. Uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that anyone born in the last 60 years was born into what he calls the culture of authenticity. Well, here is an authentic witness. Uh, Magnus Research Consultants make this statement on their webpage about the necessary qualities of a good witness in a court of law. They say, although characteristics such as good communication skills, a positive appearance, for example, dressing for success, etc., are important, in the end, there is one characteristic that is an absolute requirement for witness effectiveness in a court of law. The key characteristic is credibility. John had that characteristic. And there are preachers around today who have it too. I remember uh, talking with the well-known preacher John Piper soon after I had turned 
40 years of age. He asked me how old I was, and when he discovered that I reached that moment when for many men they think through their life and try to figure out who they are and what they want to do with the remainder of their life, he found I turned 40. I'll never forget what he said to me. Josh, he said, if you have to choose between getting a motorbike or getting a blonde, get a motorbike. Now, in point of fact, I did neither. But Piper is a credible witness. He believes what he says. There is a clarity and a passion to it. Now, compare that. Compare that credibility with the lives and disasters of the people who influence many through their massive media empires today. And ask yourself, who is more credible, Oprah Winfrey or John Piper? Harvey Weinstein or John the Baptist? Second, the witness of Jesus' miracles. Now, we talked about this when we looked at the first answer, the reasons we can know that Jesus is God, so we'll only mention it briefly this morning. But Jesus says again in verse 36, the very work that he was doing, um, that is the seven signs in John's gospel, or the miracles of Jesus, turning water into wine, healing a man who had been lame for 38 years, and of course, ultimately, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. These miracles witness to him as being God. Now, this is very difficult for many people today, these miracles. Atheists, like the proselytizing, anti-religious populist uh, Richard Dawkins, dismiss the witness of Jesus' miracles because we know that miracles cannot scientifically happen, and therefore it does not matter how much evidence there is for the resurrection of Jesus, it could not have happened because miracles are not the kind of thing that happen. But that is to misunderstand miracles. Miracles do not violate the scientific order of the universe. Oh, no. They are the expression of the order of the maker of the universe at a particular and special moment in time. This is why in the Bible, miracles tend to cluster around the great events of redemption. Moses, rescuing God's people from Egypt. Jesus, the apostles. This is why many of the greatest scientists down through history have been Christians. And still many today. I like how uh, Terry Eagleton uh, puts it. Terry Eagleton is the distinguished professor of English literature at Lancaster University in the United Kingdom. And he put it like this. Imagine someone holding forth on biology whose only knowledge of the subject is the book of British birds. And you have a rough idea of what it feels like to read Richard Dawkins on theology. Again, ask yourself, who is more credible? Richard Dawkins, frankly, ignorant pontifications on theology... 
or the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, witnessed by men and women who had nothing to gain by lying, who died for their witness, and by which now 2.2 billion people believe. So the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Jesus' miracles, third, the witness of God's Word. This is from verses 37 to verse 44. And here, Jesus makes the case that the Bible witnesses to him, but they do not see it because they do not love God or want the glory that comes from God. Now, when Jesus says that the Bible testifies or witnesses to him, he is not simply saying that there are proof texts that you can find that mention the Messiah or point to Jesus found in the Old Testament. I mean, that's certainly true. There are proof texts. Isaiah 53 verse 6, we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, who is this Lord other than Jesus Christ that, that, has, that the iniquity has been laid on him? Who is this him? The Lord said to my Lord, David says in the psalm, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, who can be the son of David but also the Lord God other than Jesus Christ in the line of David? There are such proof texts. But Jesus is saying more than simply that. He is talking about the Scriptures as a whole only makes sense when you see them as a story that is completed in Jesus. So, for instance... The Old Testament inevitably leaves you with certain questions. Who can be righteous? There's all this law, all this holy living, all these commands. Who can really keep them? Who can be righteous? What is the sufficient sacrifice for our sins? There is all this sacrificial system with lambs and goats and pigeons. Really? What is really the sufficient sacrifice for our sins? Who is the good shepherd in the line of David? You have Samuel, the promise of this king, Ruth, the king comes, King David, and then his son Solomon, who will live forever. But that Solomon was not that son. Who is this shepherd in the line of David? What is this eternal kingdom that was promised? Where is the return from exile that was predicted to be so glorious by Zechariah, Malachi, and the others? It certainly didn't seem to be very glorious. All these questions, Jesus is saying, can only find their answer in his life, death, and resurrection. But they did not understand this, he says. Because while they studied the Bible diligently, um, they went to Bible study group. They carried study Bibles. Their heart was far from God. They did not love God. They did not want to glorify God or receive praise from God. Now, note well the dichotomy of that verse 44. Those who receive glory from one another are not thereby able at the same time to be seeking glory from God. The more you focus on looking good to other people, the less you will want praise from God. They do not go together. You will twist the Scriptures to make you look good rather than to hear from God so that you might please Him. 
which means the secret of godly and effective biblical studies is to want to please God. If, if you desire to be a famous Bible teacher, you are undermining your ability to understand the Bible effectively, let alone preach it effectively. The fame you must desire to be effective in understanding the Bible and communicating it is the fame that can only come from God. Uh, in, the, uh, year, in the year of living uh, biblically, New York journalist A.J. Jacobs recorded his experiment of trying to follow every rule in the Bible literally for a year, even the unusual ones like not wearing clothes of mixed fibers. He walked around New York City with sandals and a long beard for the whole year. It's a funny book. But Jacob's came across big problems. How could he love God just because he was commanded to love him? Jacob's did not understand that the Bible was about Jesus because he did not, un- uh, did not love God. So it was then with the Pharisees, and so it very often is with the critics of the Bible today. The blindness and bias of the higher critical stream of institutions of higher learning has to be seen to be believed. And I have seen it and sat in those classrooms and listened to those lectures. One example of this was in the so-called Jesus Seminar. Founded by Robert Funk, they published their dismissal of the Bible in a book called The Five Gospels. Their methodology for accepting the reliability of a text was through members of the seminar voting red, pink, gray, or black balls. Scholar N.T. Wright criticized their system because he could not understand how if the majority thought a saying authentic, the weighted average by that system came out as inauthentic. Their criteria included Jesus saying something different from other Jews or other Christians at the time. In other words, they disassociated Jesus from the rather strong likelihood that Christians would say what Jesus had said. By such standards, a seminar on the Jesus Seminar could meet in 50 years and vote most of the members of the Jesus Seminar out of ever having existed. There is a bias against believing. Who do you think is more credible? The year of living biblically? The Jesus Seminar? Or the Bible itself? Fourth and finally, the witness of Moses. In verses 45 and 46, Jesus says that Moses will accuse them, that Moses wrote about him, and if they do not believe Moses, how will they believe him? Now, the witness of Moses is of global significance because Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all claim Moses' witness as evidence still today. 
by saying that Moses will accuse them, Jesus is saying that the law of Moses, with its stipulations and requirements, sets a standard that not even the most orthodox Jew could possibly keep. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's one thing to recite such phrases in a religious gathering. It's another thing entirely to live them in the real world. To live them in the context of the Holocaust. To live them in the context of the West Bank. To live them at home in the commonplace annoyances and petty viciousness that only a kitchen and a bedroom could supply. If Judaism follows Moses without following the Savior, Jesus, it will find that the Moses in whom they put their hope accuses them. Well, of course. Do they really do all that the law requires? Or are they really following Moses like the olive garden is following Italian cooking? Kosher may be but not the Christ. In fact, Moses wrote about Jesus. The most obvious text is Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses says that God will raise up a prophet like Moses for them. Now, this cannot mean Muhammad, despite the claims of Islam, because apart from anything else, The text says that the prophet shall be Jewish from among your brothers. And Muhammad was not Jewish. In what sense was Jesus like Moses? Moses rescued God's people from Egypt. Jesus is the fulfillment of that rescue in saving those who believe from their sin. But if they do not believe Moses, how will they believe him? A a, a right-thinking student of Moses, aware of the high demand of the the law and uh, and pondering the sacrifice of, of an animal and wondering how that could really take away his sin. It leaves us with with questions that that how could our sins be paid for? Questions to which only Jesus is the answer. If you find Moses credible, you will see Moses pointing to the Messiah, Jesus. Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence.
Is there enough evidence to believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Everyone looking for God's glory can have good evidence to believe that Jesus is God. Because of the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Jesus' miracles, the witness of the Word of God, and the witness of Moses. And would you therefore wholly and radically follow Jesus? This Jesus is God. He is not God in your personal opinion. He is absolutely and truly and completely God. Would you therefore give Him your life? Not going through the motions in some kind of Wheaton bubble compromise sense, but this is the living God Would you therefore open your heart to him, that he might soften your heart by the work of his spirit, that he might cleanse you from your sins? He is the one sacrifice for the sins that you fear will come to hang over your head on judgment day. He is the only sacrifice there is. Would you believe in him today, truly, completely, fully, finally, for he is God? Would you make him then your God, not in a pretend fake fashion, but as a radical disciple of Jesus, sold out in every possible way? Would you therefore make him your God? And would you therefore witness yourself to Jesus as God? At home, at work, on the internet, in the chat rooms, witness to the truth that Jesus is God, not as a personal opinion, but absolutely, not as some kind of radical power move terrorist, but as the saving, sacrificial Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the one who graciously comes to save us. Would you witness to him as the living Lord and God of all? And therefore, would you stand with me as we close to ask God to help us to this end? Let us pray as we stand. Our Lord, would you... Soften our hearts to love you, to want the fame that comes only from you, the glory that can come only from God, to want your praise, not other people's praise. And would you empower us by your Spirit as we behold the wondrous mystery to witness to Jesus as God, in whose name we pray, amen.